I think that this was a coup attempt. There was a section of uh, the political class moving against another section uh, with the uh, objective of uh, overturning the Constitution. Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. That's longtime labor activist, author, and commentator Bill Fletcher Jr. He talked about the January 6th insurrection and the ongoing threats to democracy by right-wing terrorism on the Black Work Talk podcast. We need a return to democratic rights and freedoms, strong democracies where governments put people and the planet first. That's the fight for 2022. Sharon Burrow, General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, takes a global view on the challenges ahead for unions on radio labor. Republicans have come to the conclusion they can't win if everybody votes. I mean, it's as simple as that. That's Bill Samuel, Director of Government Affairs at the AFL-CIO. We talked with him about the racist roots of the Senate filibuster on the Your Rights at Work radio show this week. They have nine facilities in Seattle, and they have, uh, they've been maintaining picket lines at each one of those locations. Fred Redmond, Secretary Treasurer of the AFL-CIO, has been out walking picket lines across the country, and he reported on those strikes on the America's Workforce Radio podcast. We are in a climate and in an environment where the uh, Board of Education is prohibiting the discussion of race and racism in our classrooms. And that shortchanges students. That's the bottom line. On the Educating from the Heart podcast, Representative Geraldine Thompson talked about her new legislation that's going to enforce laws requiring Florida schools to include Black history in their curriculum instead of just once a year on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I believe once you start work for worker rights, you cannot stop. You just can't stop yourself. Because I need to protest. I need to have these workers back. A former child worker and labor activist from Bangladesh, Kalpona Actor is the founder and executive director of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity. You'll hear more from her on the Labor Link podcast. These unrecognized workers are uniquely vulnerable to being exploited, even trafficked. On the latest episode of the Gig Podcast, we learn what domestic and care work is and its roots in exploitation and slavery. The IBEW wired the station for free. And in exchange, they were given the right to have a show. And I had just gotten my job as a labor educator at the university. And they, they said, oh, let's go get her to do it. Judy Ansel is the host of the Heartland Labor Forum. It's one of the longest-running labor radio shows in the country. She talked with Empathy Media Labs about her origins as a rank-and-file union member, organizer, and self-described troublemaker, as well as her work as a labor educator and radio producer. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, you'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes, and of course you can find all 150 shows on our website at laborradionetwork.org. All right, that's enough from me. Here's the show. Stephen Pitts, host of um, Black Work Talk. I'm really glad to, to be with you today, as always. Um, it's the first of the year. It's the first show we have this year, and so I'm excited to, for that. And Bill, I'm glad you're here. You know, Bill, you're my co-host on this, this miniseries. How you doing, man? Happy New Year, Steve. I'm I'm uh, good. I had some downtime at the end of the year, which I absolutely needed. Yeah, that sounds great, man. I'm glad you could do that. Um, in some ways, it's kind of a somber period. Because you know, this is after the one year anniversary of the insurrection. And um, yeah, I, I just want to get your thoughts on that, man. What do you think about the anniversary, you think about the insurrection? Any thoughts? Well, first, I call it a coup attempt. Uh, you and I have had this discussion for a year. Um, I think that this was a coup attempt. There was a section of uh, the political class moving against another section. 
with the uh, objective of uh, overturning the Constitution. Um, uh, I think uh, it's really interesting. Before the program started, I saw that Ted Cruz apologized for describing the uh, coup attempt uh, as a terrorist attack. And he apologized because I think it was Hannity or one of these other characters that said that that was wrong, and he backed down. Uh, but it was a terrorist act. Um, and uh, when I when I think about it, I think uh, two main things. One is, had well, actually three things. One, had that been people of color uh, carrying out that kind of attack, there would have been a massacre that would have made Tiananmen look like a picnic. I mean, there would have been blood in the streets. Uh, so there's no question about that. Second thing I was thinking about after the um, uh, acquittal of Kyle, uh, what's his name, in Kenosha, um, was that if I, as a black man, had grabbed an M16 or an AK-47 and gone down to the Capitol to assist the Capitol Police in stopping the coup people, uh there's no question but that I would have been killed or jailed. But certainly, had I killed anybody, I would not have been acquitted. Um, even if I had been on the side of the Capitol Police. The third thing I th was thinking about is that um, we have to keep in mind that this was one of many acts of terror by the political right. Uh, they have been emboldened, in part because of the kind of support that they're getting from the Republican Party, which has become the party for dictatorship. And relevant to today's discussion, I would say, Steve, that organized labor is entirely unprepared to deal with the far right, uh, that there's a level of denial at the upper levels of organized labor about the, the danger that is posed by right-wing terrorism, uh, congressional obstruction by the right, and the future possibilities of other coup attempts. A couple of thoughts in response to that, Bill, and I don't want to go too far on because our guests can shed a lot of light on, on how we build power to fight these things back. But I think one over how a lot of times when we look at things happening in other countries and what we call authoritarian or fascist or terrorist type stuff, the, the people who are the eight active people there become one-dimensional. And so we think they're the crazed people, right? And we don't see fully fleshed out human beings. Mm -hmm. What we saw on January 6th was fully fleshed out human beings. You know, people who were literally people's neighbors mm -hmm. doing things that they do, do overseas, by the way. And so one part of the disconnect is simply that. That's right. That we kind of have terrorists in a box, what it means. It's not a regular white American. Can't be by mm -hmm. definition, right? And so that's one thing I thought right. about. But also I think it's important is um, I think this assault on democracy has some parallels. And I went deep into it, by so I kind of just throw it out there for its consideration. Some parallels to the Confederacy and the lost cause. Because what's happening is the mm -hmm. idea of simply making legitimate what we would call illegitimate activities. And, and so you wouldn't know that the South lost the war, okay? You wouldn't know that they disenfranchised black right. folks, and therefore every politician in the, from the South is illegitimate from 1870, give or take, mm -hmm. to 1965. And we don't think about that at all, the illegitimacy mm -hmm. of that. And same thing is trying to happen now, that they're, they're trying to get control of the election machinery. So all of a sudden the so-called legitimate representatives will be legitimate once again. They'll go forward. Nothing happened. Um, and the last thing worries it to death, Bill, is that you know, we have a critique of this country's democracy that's imperfect. I think it's largely accurate, you know? Mm -hmm. But it means that if, if the current democracy is inadequate, then a lot of working folk had no stake in democracy as they know it. So it's very hard to fight for democracy when people don't think that should system any value. And, and how we bridge that gap between the important need to fight for democracy 
and the reality that for a lot of people it means nothing at all is a major challenge. Um, but I think one way to, ch to, to make the bridge that gap is through strong organizations and strong unions. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with rules of insight you might not hear elsewhere. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrade's Facebook page. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of a network of our movement for change. We need your help as you build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at stephen at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Till next time, stay safe and be well. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, January 14th, 2022. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, what world labor wants in 2022? The need for universal social protection. Fighting the privatization of schools in Africa. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. And you're too old to work, too old to work When you're too old to work and you're too young to die This is Radio Labor. The international labor movement has set its agenda for 2022 with calls for decent work, universal protection plans such as pensions and unemployment insurance, and other demands. Sharon Burrell is the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. We know that the last couple of years have been very difficult. We've seen not only the convergence of crisis with historic levels of inequality where people are struggling to survive on insecure work, on low wages, often in unsafe work. We've seen the climate emergency and its impacts growing stronger and stronger with the loss of lives and livelihoods from extreme weather event. And now we've lived through two years almost of a pandemic, a global pandemic, a health crisis. As we continue to fight for a just recovery, a recovery that's based on a new social contract with jobs, jobs and jobs, climate-friendly jobs with just transition. Because we need to see a return to full employment and we need to formalise the absolute dehumanising exploitation of informal work. We need to see fundamental rights we cannot build any economic or social future on a model that exploits people, workers at the heart of making profit but never sharing it. We must end corporate impunity that mandated due diligence with compliance where corporations have to comply with rights as essential. And we need universal social protection. Without universal social protection, people have no resilience. We need equality of income with minimum living wages and, and indeed uh, strengthen collective bargaining, but we need equality of gender and equality of race and we need inclusion. We cannot see our world where some people are secure and others aren't, where some groups are excluded, where technology is excluding even more people from a decent world of work and indeed connection. We need the sustainability goals, the Paris Climate Agreement realised, and we need a return to democratic rights and freedoms, strong democracies where governments put people and the planet first. 
That's the fight for 2022. Unions will be there on the front lines and I'm very proud of our movement that will never give up till we see a future that is safe, secure, just and sustainable. Now here's the American folk singer Joe Glazer with Too Old to Work. You work hard for a living until you get old And sometimes they push you right out of the cold When you're working times through you don't want charity You'd like to retire with some dignity And you're too old to work too old to work when you're too old to work and you're too young to die. Who will take care of you? How you get by when you're too old to work and you're too young to die? They put horses to pasture, they feed them on hay. Even machines get retired someday. The boss gets a pension when he is too old You helped him retire, you're out in the cold And you're too old to work Too old to work when you're too old to work And you're too young to die Who will take care of you, how you get by When you're too old to work And you're too young to die There's no easy cure Dreaming won't change it That's one thing for sure But fighting together We'll get there someday And when we have won We'll no longer say Too old to work Too old to work When you're too old to work And you're too young to die who will take care of you? How do you get by when you're too old to work and you're too young to die? When you're too old to work and you're too young to die. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Your rights at work. You have the right to call into this show, 202-588-0893. Chris Garlock here with labor lawyer Ed Smith. Howdy, 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 Chris. Hey, listen, if you want to call in, if you want to talk about what rights you have, what rights you don't know whether you have, what rights you don't have, please call 202-588-0893. We're in the middle of a voting rights week of action. That's being organized by the AF of LCIO. Uh, and with us to talk about that is none other than the Director of Government Affairs for the mighty AFL CIO, Mr. Bill Samuel. Bill, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. This goes back really a century um, to Reconstruction. Uh, and it's, it's kind of sad that we're fighting about it again. And uh, on a very partisan basis, there were no Republicans this time who were mm-hmm. willing to, to go along. And that's a departure from history. You know, the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had to be reauthorized periodically uh, over the last uh, couple of decades, few decades. And for the most part, Republicans joined in. I think every senator 
at one time voted to reauthorize uh, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, including some senators who were uh, incumbents now, like Mitch McConnell, who's now uh, unwilling to vote and, in fact, has uh, tied up his entire conference uh, uh, in, in voting no back in the 1990s even. Uh, in early 2000s, George W. Bush signed a voting rights reauthorization. Uh, George H. W. Bush, Ronald Reagan. Um, there's a you know there's a tradition of this being a bipartisan issue, but no longer. So, explain to me, you know what what what's the problem? I think Republicans have come to the conclusion they can't win if everybody votes. I mean, it's as simple as that. It sounds okay. harsh. Right. It sounds harsh. Um, they know where their votes are. They, they're increasingly relying on their base, uh, which is by and large white uh, and, uh, and rural to, in, in many respects. Um, they've given up on New York and California and Illinois uh, and, and a bunch of other states which are diverse. Uh, and they're relying on, the, on, a, on a very um, – it's a very cynical strategy. As I said, they don't want to see the vote expanded because that – uh, diminishes their chances. And Mitch McConnell is nothing if not uh, supremely focused on winning. This, this is not a politician, I think, with a strong moral core. And I think the party has followed his lead. And, you know, to say nothing of Donald Trump, uh, who I think we all know has no no, uh, <laughs> no real value system here. What's your What's your bottom line on this? We're going to have a lot of action over the weekend. Where do you, where do you think we're going to come out of well, this? Well, you know, Cinema's announcement was uh, not a good sign. Um, mm -hmm. she's not willing to do this and if she doesn't change her mind between now and Sunday, Monday, I don't think the Democrats are going to be able to pass these bills and our, our country is going to be set back, uh, you know, to an era that we all thought was, uh, you know, in the rearview mirror. Um, but we're not giving up. Uh, I will say over the next, you know, 72 hours, people are going to be in the streets uh, making phone calls, uh, and uh, trying to change her mind and, and, and Manchin's mind. And if we fail this time, we're going to come back. Listen, none of these bills that advanced the cause of civil rights or labor rights were easy in the first place. Uh, they took decades, if, if not longer. We're going to stay. We're going to keep at it. But uh, I, I'd say we have an uphill climb in the next uh, few days. Yeah, Bill, uh, always great to have you on, giving us the real skinny of what's happening there at the U.S. Capitol. Thank you so much, Bill Samuel. Thank you. Bill Samuel is the Director of Government Affairs for the AFL-CIO, talking about the AFL-CIO's Voting Rights Week of Action. Uh, if you are as upset as uh, me and Ed are about this, go to dclabor.org. There's a big red sign that says Take Action Now. And there's about five different things you can do, including, this is fun, record a video of yourself. And uh, there's no FCC involved, so you can say whatever the heck you want. <laughs> go for it. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker. Here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Let's go to uh, line number one. And this is Friday, January 7th, and we started this a couple months ago. I call it the first Friday with Fred. Fred is Fred Redman, who is now the Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO, proud sponsor of America's Workforce. Fred, welcome back, and Happy New Year to you, brother. Well, thank you, Flash. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. You had a good holiday? How did everything go for you? Well, I did. I... Uh... Spent some time with my uh, kids and grandkids, which is always a good thing. Fred, talk to me about Newport News. I know these negotiations have been very, very difficult. And many times that we've had you on the show in the past couple of months, you were in the middle of them. Now, what, what, what's the latest here? I'm understanding there was a contract that they, they gave the members. They didn't vote on. They didn't approve it. What, what's the latest on that, Fred? Well, we negotiated an agreement. Uh, we presented it to the members. Some of the things in the agreement we thought was good. Some of the things we thought in the agreement could have been better. But we presented it to our members. And the members felt as though it did not reflect the wealth that they create for Huntington Ingalls. And it did. And the agreement, in their opinion, did not reflect uh, their uh what they felt should have been appreciation for the work that they'd done during COVID and did not reflect their ability as the greatest shipbuilders in the world. So the contract was rejected. 
and uh, we took a break over the Christmas holidays to talk to our folks and to try to find out some of the issues that was concerning to them. And uh, this week I met with the committee. We've put together another proposal, which I sent to the company, as a matter of fact, this morning. Uh, I hope to meet with the company uh, within the next week to see if we can bring this thing to a conclusion. Well, I was reading on the uh, AFL-CIO website last month. They got you going all over the country. Uh, Stoneway Concrete, which is in the Seattle area, and the Teamsters yeah. there. That would be uh, Local 174. They right. walked off the job the beginning of December, and I know you went to the uh, picket line. Man, what was that like? I mean, <laughs> can you explain well, it, that one? It was, yeah, I, I mean, you know, Stoneway is a place. They actually have nine locations in the Seattle area. And uh, and, and uh, the Teamsters, uh, you know, they drive these cement trucks, and they report to uh, construction sites, and they, you know, deliver the cement that's, you know, that's necessary in order to do particularly heavy highway construction. Uh, these folks went into negotiations. The company um, put a draconian health care proposal on the table that was going to eat up a very large portion of their uh, uh, wages. And then the company wanted to change their pension plan to go from a Taft-Hartley defined pension benefit plan to a 401k. So these are folks who say, look, enough is enough. This company is very profitable. Uh, you know, the anticipation of the money that they're going to make and the contracts that they're going to get uh, with the infrastructure bill, there'll be major producers of cement for those projects that's going to come out of the bill. Uh, you know, but they didn't consider uh, sharing some of that with the workers uh with the Teamsters workers in Seattle. So they decided to withhold their labor. It was interesting because they have nine facilities in Seattle, and they have, uh, they've been maintaining picket lines at each one of those locations. So I was in Seattle meeting with our uh, AFL-CIO State uh, Federation and our Central Labor Councils, and I was invited and really enjoyed spending some time with those courageous workers on the picket lines. Well, Teamsters are proud sponsors of this show, so we'll reach out to them. That's uh, Local 174 out of Seattle. Yeah, 174. On... Yeah, and, yeah, and, you know, these are, you know, it's it's a very committed group of people who, uh, you know, really they just want the uh, company, they want this particular company just do the right thing. And yeah. the Teamsters have been very, very instrumental you know, in all the strikes that have taken place throughout this country over the past, so particularly the past year, you know, they have in their contracts flashed that they will not cross uh, union organized picket lines, and they've been true to that. Uh, you know, and they very, very essential when it comes to work stoppages because mm -hmm. they make sure that their members uh, support uh, AFL-CIO sponsored strikes. And uh, so we're fully in support of their efforts in Seattle. And that's uh, just a great group of trade unionists. Fred, you take care. We'll talk to you next month, okay? Okay. Thanks, Flash. Fred Redmond, Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO. That's it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday, the American Federation of Musicians and the latest from the Better Business Bureau. Until then, all of you, have a safe and wonderful weekend. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com. You're listening to Educating from the Heart. Thank you for joining our lively conversations with teachers, support professionals, parents, and students as they share issues that matter most in our public schools. Here are your hosts, Tina Dunbar and Luke Flint.
Well, for several years now, Representative Geraldine Thompson has been trying to ensure that no longer will entire generations of Florida school children be able to graduate with only getting a little bit of African American history. She wants to ensure they get the full story. Depending upon the school district, students might get a thorough exposure to African American history or they might not. Some districts offer standalone classes, others offer the course as an elective, which means students are not required to take it. So to ensure all students receive the quality education they deserve, Rep. Thompson tells us her bill would put teeth into the current law to make sure African American history is taught with fidelity to all students across the state. You have been trying to promote African-American history studies through a number of uh, attempts in terms of legislation. What does that mean for our teachers discussing African-American history and some of these really important issues connected to what we see going on politically right now? Well, I think one of the things that members of the legislature have to be reminded of is that we have had in Florida law, Florida statute 1003 since 1994, over 27 years that requires instruction on African-American history, starting with the culture of Africa before slavery, going through slavery, the civil rights movement, all of it and it has not been uniformly enforced. And so if, if you say that you have to follow the law regarding to the Parents' Bill of Rights, why aren't we following this law that's been on the books for 27 years? And so that's what I have been uh, advocating. And when I filed the legislation in 2019, it was to put some teeth in the law to say right. that there's some sanctions if this instruction is not being delivered. Well, the bill has yet to get a hearing. I have refiled it again this year uh, because I think you can't pick and choose which laws you're going to follow. And yes, we are in a climate and in an environment where the uh, Department of Education, the Board of Education is prohibiting the discussion of race and racism in our classrooms. and that shortchanges students. That's the bottom line. I talked to a group of uh, students a couple months ago, and I asked them to name 10 individuals who were important and significant during the civil rights movement. And so they named some people at the national level, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, Jesse Jackson, et cetera, the, the, the names that come to mind. Then I asked them to name 10 who were from Florida or who worked in Florida, I got no response. And the reason that they did not respond is because they're not getting the instruction. It's not being taught in the classrooms. And so that's what we have to keep um, working toward and promoting. And that's why I'm saying it's the students who are being shortchanged. Thank you for joining us for this month's episode. Until we meet again, keep educating from the heart. I believe once you start work for worker rights, you cannot stop. You just can't stop yourself. Because I need to protest. I need to have these workers back. That's Kalpana Actor, a former child worker turned worker organizer and the director of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity. My name is Judy Gearhart, and this is The Labor Link, a podcast about workers' rights and global supply chains, where we share the personal stories of the brave individuals organizing the workers who make our stuff. This podcast is a collaboration between the Accountability Research Center and Empathy Media Lab. To hear more podcasts about workers' rights, visit laborradionetwork.org. Bangladesh has built its economy on apparel exports. It's the world's second largest exporter of apparel after China, and the industry generates more than 80% of the country's export earnings, employing 4.5 million workers, most of them women. As much as a quarter of Bangladesh's population depends on the industry financially. Not surprisingly, Bangladesh's economy has taken huge hits during the COVID-19 pandemic, and many workers have been struggling to feed their children. 
In Bangladesh, there's no social insurance, and even the workers producing for rich export markets like Europe, the U.S., or Canada are earning subsistence wages. In our last podcast interview with Tola Moon from Cambodia, we talked about the Clean Clothes Campaign Pay Your Worker campaign. Kalpona and BCWS have an important role in this campaign also. The campaign is exposing how unreliable and unjust global supply chains are for workers around the world. It is always really good to see you, and I think your story is amazing. We really want to get you to give your analysis of what needs to happen in the apparel industry in Bangladesh. Sure. My name is Kontona Akhtar. I'm a former child worker. I started working in a factory in age of 12, and I did that because my dad was the primary earner in the family, and he got ill. And there is no one who can bring food in the table for seven in family. My mom took responsibility first, but she couldn't continue because she had infant at home. So she needed to take care of our baby sister. So it's me. And later, my 10 years old brother, who also joined with me, working in a factory and bring food in the table. So that's who I am. I'm a troublemaker. Because somebody needs to make a noise to make changes. So that's what I'm doing. And I emphasize that I had to be a child worker because my mom did not pay a living wage. So if she would be paid living wage in bank, then I could go to school. Of course, I'm happy that work I do. But I just wanted to say that the living wage is still an issue here in Bangladesh, in everywhere around the world, especially in the production country. And why did I founded BCWS? So when I was in factory, I worked without knowing law and rights. So when I, I came to know law and rights, it was kind of like second born for me. And I started organizing and it was not a favorite part of the manufacturers here, nor the government. They didn't like my work. So first they fired me and then they blacklisted me throughout the industry. So there was nowhere that I can get a job. So my life was a little tough. So then I joined with uh, a union called Big Off. So I worked with them as labor educator, field organizer, union organizer, as well as served in their board. A few colleagues came together and we said, yeah, we need to start something new where we can help workers. Uh, who are also working in the government sector, I believe once you start work for worker rights, you cannot stop. You just can't stop yourself. They need to protest. I need to have these workers back. During the first four months of COVID-19, comparing 2020 to 2019, they noted widespread unethical behavior from the global brands, with some refusing to pay or asking for unrealistic discounts. The government established a centralized fund to cover workers' wages between April and June 2020, and employers paid up to 25 days of wages for workers during the lockdown, even though they weren't working. It's important to note, however, that most workers depend on overtime earnings and production bonuses to make ends meet, so just receiving their base salary was still a problem for many. But even a dentist simulation package couldn't save workers' jobs. Many workers, especially the pregnant women workers, they lost job. Today, we do have orders and workers do have job, but the workers are extremely fear in this time to getting fired. They cannot afford to lose their jobs at this moment. Even if they face retaliation due to union activism, if they face gender-based violence in that factory, but they don't want to see that the children are starving at home. So they keep working in the factory. So we are asking our governments to make a social protection for our workers. But in the same time, we are also asking the Global Severances Grantee Fund from the brands for this time. And we want the brands, the manufacturers and government to put money together in that fund. So workers are losing their job at this moment. They're not owing empty hand. They at least have some economic security with them. And for long run, we're definitely asking and campaigning and advocating in the country to have a social protection law or unemployment insurance law. 
To learn more about Kalpona's work and the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity, go to bcwsbd.org. And to hear more episodes of The Labor Link, go to empathymedialab.com slash laborlink. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. What is domestic work? It's everything we do at home uh, to keep our home clean, to keep our home safe. It's about maintaining a family's healthy and sound. Without it, all other work is impossible. That's Elizabeth Tang. She lives in Hong Kong and she's leading the International Domestic Workers Federation. I'm Bama Athreya, host of The Gig. This podcast is about the future of work, and this season will focus on the world's oldest profession, domestic or care work. Elizabeth and I talked about how these unrecognized workers are uniquely vulnerable to being exploited, even trafficked. Women usually go through private recruitment agencies who, who will arrange the, the papers and the travel and then bring them to different uh, places of the world. But in most of these uh, destination countries, there is no legal protections of, of the rights of the working conditions of these migrant domestic workers. So they end up going to a countries uh, where they don't have any protections and they easily become a prey of a human trafficking as well. I'm going to introduce you now to a longtime friend and colleague, Ambassador Luis C. DeBaca. He served as the State Department's ambassador at large to monitor trafficking in persons for many years. He's an expert on modern day slavery. I asked him to help us understand who gets trafficked into domestic servitude and how. One of the first cases was a case involving a Filipino diplomat. This would have been in um, the 1990s. And when I say diplomats, I don't just mean people who are at an embassy, but also those who worked for institutions such as the World Bank. And those are people who get brought over to the United States, but they are not themselves diplomats. They are the servants of diplomats. And as we were standing up what became the fight against modern slavery in the 1990s, we started seeing a number of folks who were running off um, and trying to get help in the community in Washington, D.C. At that point, I was a prosecutor and I was setting up the National Worker Exploitation Task Force. What was interesting is that we were making cases on the other side of town, up in the Maryland suburbs, with teenaged African children. Um, who'd been brought over by individuals who weren't diplomats or just a part of the, the business community. Cases like Evelyn Chapa, who's now a real positive, big survivor leader, a good colleague of us. Tell um, us about her case. So in Evelyn's case, it's one of the classic West African child slave cases. She was recruited to come to the United States with an offer of being able to come to, to school. She was a young teenager at the time and ended up having to walk the kids to the bus and then turn around and go right back to the house. And the kind of classic isolation, physical abuse, you know, et cetera. In that case, the condition of servitude certainly could have afforded a local domestic servant. And so it was as much about wanting to have control over someone as it was that it was any kind of a rational business decision. I asked Lou whether those emotional bonds made it harder for domestic workers to realize their rights under the law. When you think about the legal structure around domestic work, it was of a piece with agricultural labor. And you think of those not as being the same, unless you think about who was doing both domestic service and agricultural labor in the 1930s. And I think that some of that ends up just being flat out Southern racism on the part of the politicians in Congress at the time. But some of that also ends up being a misapprehension as to the level of emotional interconnection between employers and domestic servants on the one hand, and agricultural laborers often thinking about they might be part of your children or your extended family, et cetera, and so they shouldn't be covered. 
And in both of those, you have that situation where there's a, kind of the idea that if you dare to ask for, you know, wages or fair wages for everything that you were doing, that you were dishonoring the relationship and like the long-term interconnectedness of the families. And of course, the only party to that transaction that is offended by that is the one that would end up having to pay more. There's that cultural overlay that allows them to be offended and to not have to pay more. I'm Bama Athreya, and you've been listening to The Gig. You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Today, I'm speaking with Judy Ansel of the Heartland Labor Forum. So Judy, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and what led you to organize labor. Well, I am professionally a labor educator and uh, retired a couple of years ago after 29 years running a labor education program at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I originally come from Chicago, and I grew up there in a kind of blue-collar, working-class town called Maywood outside of Chicago, and learned a little bit about unions because there were a lot of unions around at the time. There were steel workers, there were teachers unions, and so on and so forth. But I really didn't have any direct experience until I became a community college teacher, or at least I wanted to become a community college teacher. And I was living in the Bay Area at that time. This was in the 70s. And lo and behold, I entered the job market the same year that the community colleges discovered the miracle of adjuncts. And I applied for jobs all over. And I was told, yeah, we have plenty of part-time jobs for you, but if you want a full-time job, come back in about 20 years because we're full up. And so I ended up teaching at, once one semester I taught at five different colleges and, you know, was Zooming, I was one of these freeway people, was Zooming around from college to college. And at one of the colleges, I ran into a table of people who were recruiting for a part-time teachers association. And I said, oh, goody. <laughs> and so I, I joined. And this part-time teachers association grew, actually sued the state of California for tenure rights to our jobs, because we were mainly working at part-time at public school community colleges. And then we joined the AFT. And eventually, I, I sort of settled in working in the San Mateo Community College District at a couple of schools there. And I got active in the AFT there and became an organizer, was hired as an organizer. About the time that California got collective bargaining for public employee for teachers. And so I kind of cut my teeth learning how to organize. And so that was my first union experience. And then later on, I moved to Kansas City, and I actually went to work in a factory and joined the, joined the Steelworkers Union. I was a lathe machinist and activist and troublemaker in the Steelworkers Union for about five years before I became a labor educator. And so could you talk a little bit about why you think unions and organized labor are important and why you're spending your time covering it with the Heartland Labor Forum? Well, yeah, our show started a long time ago. It started in 1989. And it started when we, when basically just a short time after our community radio station was founded, which was a huge opportunity. We got a show because the IBEW wired the station for free. And in exchange, they were given the right to have a show. And I had just gotten my job as a labor educator at the university, and they, they said, oh, let's go get her to do it. <laughs> and so the labor council came, and they said, would you be interested? And, you know, and we recruited a number of volunteers from the unions and, and you know, be, began what is called at our station a group show, 
I mean, because it is, it's, we have different producers every week and we have lots of people involved, which is, which is great. So why cover labor news and labor issues? Well, that's where most of the people are. Most of the people are workers and they don't get news in the, in the mainstream media. The decline of labor coverage just in the last 20, 30 years has been, you know, horrible. We have, nobody's a full-time labor reporter anymore. We used to have a bunch of them. We used to have people who understood labor issues who were reporting on strikes and contract negotiations and organizing drives. And now the people who come to cover have very little expertise. They don't understand what's going on. So it's really important to have shows that focus issues and report them from the point of view of the workers and know what they're talking about. And so this whole series of, of labor shows that we have across the country, I think is a really important addition to the whole media market that exists. So looking into the future of organized labor, where do you see opportunity and hope? Well, you know, as they always say, it's the bad bosses that get unions. I think we have a bumper crop of them, you know, around and the bad politicians as well. I, you know, I think the times have, are really changing and making a possibility of a resurgence of the labor movement quite likely. I, I think we're already seeing it. I, you know, we're seeing an increase in strikes. We're seeing an increase in organizing. And I think we're seeing it really vastly change consciousness among young workers who understand much, much clearer than I think people in my generation or your generation did which is they, under, they understand that this is a class struggle and that uh, the two sides are not going to work it out and that you got to fight. So that's the main thing I see as far as hope is concerned. You know, I think that our efforts is, gives me some hope. Some of the people I've met in the, in the network are inspiring to me because of the, the, the work they're doing and they're teaching me things for sure. And same, same. I'm, I'm just so humbled to be around your experience and depth in labor organizing, just being on the airwaves for 30 years. For someone pretty new to this game, I have nothing but gratitude and humbleness, you know, and, and so really appreciate it. It's a labor of love, let me say. You know, it really is. Yeah. Well, Judy Ansel of the Heartland Labor Forum. Thanks so much for talking today. Well, thank you, Evan. It was fun. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.